I love a good movie trilogy. What is the best one of all time? What is the best movie trilogy? You know, there's like, there's like the, that series, right? I don't know if it's like, people have all sorts of views on that, right? The Godfather movies, people really like those. Um, the Matrix was good for like one movie, and then there were, they made two more. I don't know why, but um, the, the, some of the epic ones, right? Like Star Wars, and I'm talking about the original trilogy, not that other stuff that they did. I'm a little more like, I was a fan of Star Wars back when it was pure and holy. Um, until they ruined it, uh, but that original trilogy, man, like that's awesome. Um, the the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and I'm not talking about just like this the movie, the ones that were released. I'm talking about like the director's cut, all 12 hours of of the movie. Uh, those are awesome, right? It's awesome when you follow a storyline that takes place over several movies and they kind of have to unpack that thing and then they get to that climactic scene, that moment where it all comes together, that the threads are all kind of, that have been dangling, are all tied together in this, this pivotal moment, right? And, and you see that, you know, that Frodo getting rid of the ring or, or whatever in, in Mount Doom or, or like the moment in, in Return of the Jedi where, where uh, Vader turns on the Emperor and rescues Luke, right? Uh, spoiler alert on that, but that was like 30 years ago. If you haven't seen it, that's your fault at this point. I'm not going to apologize for that. Um, but th- th- there's that climactic moment. In, uh, in French, they call it, in literature, they call it the denouement. It's this, it's this moment where all the threads are pulled together and this is the climax of the thing. Well, the Bible has a similar thing going on as it, as it weaves its tail. Even though the Bible is 66 books written over thousands of years by different authors. It's not just one singular book. It's more like a library. That library has some threads that run through it where it's telling a story and it has characters and it has sort of a climax. Um, It's telling a historical story, so it's not like a fiction thing, but it's talking about people that lived and existed. And the the, the central um, figure of the Bible is Jesus Christ. He explains to us who we are, who God is. He, we relate to God through him. All of the Old Testament, which is the biggest portion of the Bible, prophesies and anticipates Jesus coming. So it's all leading up to him, and there's little hints of him all throughout the Old Testament. Then Jesus shows up, and it's written in, about in four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all talk about what Jesus did in his time on earth. And then every book written after John in the Bible is about Jesus looking backwards, like, okay, here's what he did, here was his death, here's his resurrection, here are all the implications of that. So the central figure of the entire Bible is Jesus Christ. And the central story of Jesus is the final week of his life where he dies on on a cross on a Friday and resurrects from the dead on a Sunday. That is the climactic moment of, of the entire Bible. And we celebrate that as a church every year because it's so critical for us to always tie into it and remember it. And we celebrate it uh, along with Christians all over the world in, in what's called Holy Week, the week leading up to Easter. So on Good Friday, which we're going to do a Good Friday service this year. We haven't been able to do that in the past. We're excited about that. We're Good Friday, and then we're going to celebrate Easter Sunday. Leading up to that then is this series called Lent. And for this, for this time, from now through Easter, and we're actually going to extend a week beyond Easter, we are going to look at the final week of Jesus's life. Now, Jesus did his ministry on earth when he would preach and teach and heal people and all that. He did that for about three years from A.D. roughly 24 to 27, right in that time frame. 
And he did lots of things that you may have heard of before, uh, feeding the 5,000, and he walked on water, and he told the wind and the waves to stop, and they did, and he healed people of leprosy, and he turned water into wine, and all of these things. And the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record all the things Jesus did, or many of the things Jesus did for those three years. But the last week of Jesus' life takes up a lot of space in the Gospels because it's so important. There's so many things we're learning in that final week about God, about Jesus, about ourselves, about our purpose, and about how we can relate to him, that the Gospel writers spend a full one-third of all their writing just on the last week of Jesus' life. In fact, the book of John spends half of the book on Jesus' final week. So what I want us to do is dive into the, the different things that happen each day of the final week and get into like what, uh, what, did it, what did Jesus do and what did it mean and what was going on and what can we learn not just about then but learn about ourselves. So most of you know that Jesus, and we've talked about this before, right? Most of you know that Jesus died and rose from the dead that week. Um, that's kind of like the moment where the Death Star blows up. You're like, okay, I know where this is going. This is the big thing. The Death Star blew up. The Titanic sank. I got it. I knew where this was going. But I want to back up and show you something that happened earlier. Have you ever seen one of those movies where it like opens with a scene and something happens and then they're like 36 hours earlier and then they back up and show you like how they got there? That's what we're going to do. So Jesus is going to die on a Friday. We're going to back up before that and go to the Sunday before that and, 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 and talk about what happens. And to give you some context, we have to back up even before that day. In Matthew 16, we read about Jesus taking his disciples to the very northern tip of Israel. There's, a, there's an area there, a little strip of land. There's some mountains around. Um, modern day, we call that area the Golan Heights. You've probably heard of that because they lob missiles there from Lebanon and Israel. There's a lot of... Uh, a lot of controversy around that area. Well, there's a town up there that was kind of the Sin City, Roman, Vegas sort of town of its day called Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus takes his good little Jewish boy disciples up to this kind of Sin City, and he says to them, who do you say I am? And, and Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter's like, and Jesus says, yeah, that's, that's right. And from that moment on, Luke tells us when Luke writes about it, Luke says that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. So far up north of the country, he looks down south to Jerusalem and says, I'm going there. That is my direction. That is my goal. That is my aim. And he tells his disciples, yeah, you guys understand who I am. Here's what's going to happen next. I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. Matthew relays it this way, verse, chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So he tells his disciples as they're heading to Jerusalem, hey guys, here's what's going to happen. We're going to get there to Jerusalem and the, the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and all the religious leaders in Israel, the Jewish leaders of the day, they are going to kill me and then a couple days later, I'm going to come back from the dead. That would have been a little bit shocking for the disciples to hear, right? Like the, the, those 12, the 12 apostles and anyone, anyone else gathered in the crowd, they'd be like, okay, that's, that's, kind, of, that's kind of weird. Um, but I, but I want to point this out because this happens before we even get to the final week of Jesus' life. He's going to die and he knows what's going to happen. Now, I want to point this out because every now and then, even in today's world, and I've seen this on Twitter, where people will say things like, Jesus was killed by insert modern sort of political idea. So Jesus was killed by hatred and bigotry and intolerance. Jesus was killed by overly religious people, all of these kind of ideas. And I get why people say that. 
But the Bible doesn't say that Jesus was killed by those people per se. What the Bible teaches and what Jesus teaches is he died on purpose and it was his choice. He laid down his life for us. It was not snatched away from him. So I want us to see in, in, in leading up to Easter all the ways that Jesus like plans this thing and arranges the whole thing. So he dies on a Friday. Five days before that, he rolls in on Sunday and he enters Jerusalem on a donkey. And it's a bit of a weird thing. And so I want to read it to us from Matthew chapter 21. We'll start with verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So they're getting close to Jerusalem, and Jesus tells his disciples, go up on ahead to the next village, and you're going to find these animals, untie them, and bring them to me. Um, considering that those animals would be a form of transportation, this is kind of an ancient carjacking, right? <laughs> like, basically, he's like, just go take those. And if anybody questions you about it, just say the Lord needs them, which is like the greatest excuse for something, right? Like, you're, you're stealing something, and then you're like, actually, God needs it. Like, who are you to argue? right? It's weird, right? But one thing I want you to notice is how Jesus has even planned this ahead of time. Like he knows what's up there and he knows like, all right, you're going to find this. Let's go get this. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to go into Jerusalem. He is orchestrating this thing and making some of these things um, happen. He's got preparation for it. So Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem and he's going to go in as a king, He's going to enter, and their people are going to treat him like he's a king, but it's the kind of king that you don't expect. It's weird. Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. Then they brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So this is prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus comes along, some of that Old Testament stuff that's predicting Jesus come. This is from Zechariah, and it's prophesying that Jesus is going to come as a king, and it describes him as being humble and mounted on a donkey. Um, that's weird. If you're going to roll in as a king, you don't roll in on as a donkey. Think about donkeys. They're not, they don't just sort of scream king, you know, when you see someone come in on one, right? You're like, that's a little awkward. Um, they're just awkward animals to, to sort of ride on. Um, and, it, and it's a weird thing. You would think a king would roll in like on a war horse. Um, but there's some precedent to this. Um, Stanley Hauerwas points this out. On the one hand, this looks like all the other triumphal entries. 200 years earlier, Simon Maccabeus had defeated foreign armies and kept Israel independent. And he rode in Jerusalem with people shouting cheers and waving palm branches because he delivered them. This triumphal entry parodies the entries of kings and armies. Victors in battles do not ride into their capital cities riding on asses, but fearsome horses. But this kind does not and will not triumph through force of arms. This has got to be so confusing to the apostles because they, they know about 
the, the, the Maccabeus story. They know, they know that when you're going to come in and proclaim yourself as king, you come in on a horse or you walk or something, you make a big thing. And Jesus is like, let's go in on a donkey. And I'm sure his disciples were like, you're doing this wrong. You're not doing the right thing. Like, let's just get some PR for you, Jesus, because you could do this so much better if you would just listen to us. And they're like, all right, let's throw our cloaks out on the thing. We can at least make it look like he's a big deal. Um, and it's just a, a weird thing that you don't expect. Um, because they think Jesus is going to come and he's going to take the throne. He's going to assert himself as king. He's going to rule. He's going to deliver the people. And then he, then he comes in on a donkey. Well, what is he communicating here when he does that? Well, number one, he's fulfilling the scripture. The scripture that was prophesied about him. Zechariah said, your king comes in humble on a donkey. He's actually doing that. But he's also teaching us some things, I think, that are very counterintuitive. Jesus shows up to save humanity, and he's not going to do it by asserting his power and killing the people who are against him. He's going to do it by uh, losing his power and actually dying. He's going to triumph over death by himself dying and resurrecting. He's going to lay down his life so that we can gain ours. So he rides in on a donkey, which doesn't look kingly, um, but he's a humble king. And it says here he comes humble, mounted on, on a donkey. What, what humility that is that he shows. And I was thinking about this, and, and think about um, maybe one of the things he's teaching us here in this, in this moment. Um, what is sin? Sin is when we blow it, right? Sin is when we miss the mark. Sin is when we do things we should not do. We gossip and lie and cheat and steal and, and all of the things that you might sort of think of as sin. Um, but sin, at the end of the day, is, is, has its roots in pride. Sin is saying, I know better than God. God wants to do this thing. I don't care. I'm going to do it my own way. And so sin is when we, the servants, take the place of the king. We go, I know better. I'm going to rule over my life. I'm going to do it this way. It is the servant becoming the king. That's what, that's what sin is. And Jesus shows up like a king who's appearing on a donkey like a servant. If sin is a servant acting like a king, then salvation is the king acting like a servant. All, all sin comes from pride. It comes from thinking that we are bigger than we are. For example, when we worry, worry is a sin. And so when we worry, what are we saying? We're saying, God can't handle this. I need to really work myself up and handle it. Um, I, don't, I, I don't trust God to, to do this. I, and, and worry is when I want to take control as the king of my life. Think about larger sins, not just personal ones, but sort of corporate ones. Something like the Holocaust. What was the Holocaust except a bunch of people who should be servants claiming to be kings, claiming to rule over other people's lives, claiming power and authority and grabbing control? It was servants trying to be the king. And Jesus rolls up as the king and he shows up in a humble way like a servant. And he shows up like we wouldn't expect. So how did the crowd react to him when he comes in this way on a donkey? Verse 8, it continues on. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. They say a couple things when he, when he walks in. The crowds, you know, the, the, the whole like waving palm branches, they're cheering for him. They say, Hosanna, which is, means Lord save us, 
or salvation has come. And so by using that term, they're saying, this is the guy who's going to save us. All our hopes, all our dreams, all, all of that is wrapped up in this person. He's going to liberate us from our oppressors. Now, when they say he's going to save us, they don't probably think of our, their sin They're thinking, he's going to save us from the Roman oppressors. Rome rules over us right now. We don't like the Romans, Herod, Pontius Pilate, all these people. Jesus is going to step up and kick those fools off the throne. He is going to be our guy and set up this earthly political kingdom so that Israel can be awesome. They're they're, they're hoping that he will make Israel great again, you know. And so he rolls and they're like, this is our guy. And they, they, they ask him to be that. They desire for him to be that. And they don't just say Hosanna. They call him son of David. David is the most powerful king, most well-known king in Israel's history. And so when they call him son of David, it's a way of saying you're the ultimate king. You are that guy. You are ever, all of our hopes and dreams are, are, are met in you, are placed onto you. And Jesus is humble, but he isn't modest, Modesty would be, at that moment, modesty would be like, I mean, not really, guys. I know you're calling me like the ultimate king and son of God and all that stuff. Like, nah, I'm, I'm not. I'm just, I'm just sort of regular, you know. That would be modest. He doesn't do that. He's humble, but he's not modest. He'll say, yeah. They're like, you're the ultimate king. And Jesus is like, uh-huh. And people start freaking out. Wait, who does this guy say he is? And you'll see next week he raises the ante on that even farther and really brings the confrontation to the people, uh, to the religious leaders of the day and really provokes them with his true identity. He just rolls with this idea that he is the king. Now, it's a little bit weird if you think about it because a lot of times if you read through the Gospels, when Jesus performs a miracle, a lot of times he'll tell people to like keep quiet about it. He'll, he'll do something and people will be all worked up and he'll be like, Shh, you know, like, don't make a thing, don't make a fuss, um, you know, don't, don't tell a bunch of people about that. Like, he really controls the, 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 the popularity in a sense. But here he is rolling to Jerusalem and, he, and people are embracing him as that guy and he doesn't stop them. He's like, yeah, okay, you're about to see who, who, who I truly am. And, and he sort of claims this role of God. And he's setting up this counterintuitive kingdom. He's setting up a kind of kingdom that we have never seen before. You know, I think kingdom is a weird idea for Americans. We don't have a lot of frame of reference for kingdom. Our country was founded by throwing off a kingdom and not wanting to rule, be ruled that way. And, and, and so you say kingdom to Americans and we think like Middle Ages, we think, you know, Knights of Round Table, maybe Game of Thrones, we think something like that around kingdom. Um, and we don't have this frame of reference, but a kingdom is a real thing uh, historically and even today. I remember being in Thailand back in like 2003. And we went and saw a movie in Bangkok with some friends. And so we're going to see this movie. And before the movie starts, they showed another little movie for like a minute or something. And it was this movie, and it was showing these images of the king of Thailand. And they're like showing him as a young man and, you know, doing his thing. And everybody in the theater, when this movie comes on, everybody stands up. And so I stand up. I'm like, what are we doing? I'm like, this movie isn't even that good. It's just this picture of this guy, like, which is a bunch of images of this guy. What are we doing? But it was like, oh, it's the king. Like, we honor the king. I'm like, man, you guys are serious about this king stuff over here. You know, like, as an American, that's just so weird. Like, wow, this is really, are we, are we doing this? Is this a big deal? You know, and 
It was a big deal, and it is in a lot of places in, in the world historically and, and even till today, um, this idea of kingdom. Well, Jesus establishes a kingdom in coming into Jerusalem. He's, he's pointing out a, a different kind of kingdom. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is another way it's talked about, is something very different than the earthly political kingdom idea. Dallas Willard writes a lot about this, and he explains it this way. The kingdom of God, it is God reigning. It is present wherever what God wants done is done. It is the range of God's effective will. The news that makes feet lovely is your God reigns. The idea of the kingdom of God is there is this countercultural sort of subculture that exists across all ethnic groups and tribes and nations and tongues and all that. That is the kingdom of God. That is any space where God's will is being done. That, that, is, that is the kingdom kingdom of, of heaven or the kingdom of, of God. Um, and the people who are subjects in that kingdom are called disciples. And the disciples of Jesus that live in his kingdom, many people in this room, we follow a different set of rules than everyone else. Like America has its rules and its boundaries and laws and you want to follow those. But outside of that, we're living this other kingdom. We're living in a different set of values we're not valuing things the way culture values them. We're not looking at things exactly the way culture looks at them. We are saying we are a different people. I'm a citizen of America, absolutely. I have a driver's license and a passport, but I'm a citizen of this other kingdom as well. And that kingdom, this Jesus' kingdom, defines for me values, ethics, morals, purpose, meaning, how to, how to endure suffering. These things are... These things are Jesus' kingdom stuff, not American stuff. The phrase kingdom of heaven, the Jews had three, three levels of heaven. And the lowest level, what they would call God's footstool, was, was the, the, the realm that we live in here. The idea of heaven being like the air. The air we breathe is sort of like the lowest level of kingdom of heaven. So when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is among you, it's literally like it's here now in the air that we breathe. It's not something that comes up later. Um, it is this different place where the people of God serve one another, where we pray for one another, where we ask God's spirit to intervene in our lives, where we baptize people, where we, um, where we come alongside and link arms and, and try to build each other up and encourage each other, where we challenge each other, where we serve the world around us. That is kingdom of God stuff. And that's what we're called to be about. It is within the mainstream culture, but it functions outside of the mainstream culture. And that may sound weird, but I love it. I love the idea that Christianity exists outside of the mainstream. And one of the reasons Christianity has spread all over the world is, for, is, is that, is that it's not tied to an ethnic group, it's not tied to a nation state or a, a particular culture. Christianity is this, this other kingdom kind of thing that can spread all over the, all over the world, um, and that is the way it was designed to be. And I think we need to remember this as followers of Jesus, especially as we are about to approach another election cycle in this country. Can you believe the election of 2020 is like right around the corner? I, I how about you? I have not recovered from the 2016 election. <laughs> like that was a that was whoa. <laughs> there was just a lot going. Not just here, all over the world. Brexit and other things going on in 2016, like there's some crazy stuff going on. And here we are about to get sucked into another election cycle 
in this country. And, and, what I, and I understand why some people get worked up about it. What I don't understand is why followers of Jesus get worked up about it. Because our, when we get worked up about presidents and mayors and all of these things, like uh, vote, yes, go vote and, and do your civic duty and all that. But when we get so worked up about it, aren't we kind of saying like, hey, um, can we have a different king? Can we have one that will come in on a war horse? I've got one on a donkey, but not really interested. Isn't that kind of what we're doing? Like, I think when we get so worked up about it, we are like losing the thread. We've lost the plot here. We are, we are, we are betraying our beliefs when we get so worked up. We already have a true king who has come into the world. And he showed us a very different way to relate to power. He doesn't come in and grab power. He, he, he kind of subverts it um, by giving up his life. And, and it's a, just a different thing. So let me make this personal for you today and then we're done. If you've not been baptized into Christ, we're gonna baptize some people after church today over at 2810. If you've not given your life to Christ and been immersed in water and been baptized into him, that is your initiation into the kingdom. And if you haven't done that, maybe today's your day. Come up to me afterwards, we'll talk about it. You could check on your connection card and say, hey, I'm interested in talking about getting baptized. We'll get some people together, we'll talk with you about it. Um, and, and that would be a way for you to say, hey, I wanna in on the kingdom. Hundreds of people have done that at this church in the last decade, that they've said, I'm in, and I want to follow Jesus, and, and they, they get baptized into him, and, and they get initiated into the kingdom. Um, but for the rest of us, if you have been baptized and given your life to him, I want you to remember that you're a subject of a king and in a kingdom. And maybe subject isn't your favorite word. Let's just use disciples. We are disciples who live in this other kind of kingdom in the world, and as a disciple, we're trying to follow Jesus and live our lives as if he was living in our shoes. So two implications of that. Number one, we don't get wrapped up in earthly kingdoms. Don't get bent around the axle um, because that temptation is coming to get wrapped up in the American kingdom. Don't get sucked in and vote, of course, but it's not everything. Remember, we live in a time and a place here, and, and we don't want to lose focus in our, in our moment here in history. We don't want to lose focus on the bigger picture and what matters. Living a life of meaning and purpose, enduring under suffering, um, having a direction and focus for your life that God provides. This is the kingdom stuff. This is not stuff um, our culture can provide. Remember last week I talked about three buckets and I said we have so much freedom in America that we've actually drained the bucket of meaning. We've torn down all the things that bring meaning so that we can be free to do whatever we want whenever we want. And there's, there's something very appealing about that. But what happens is when you tear down all the things that brought meaning, whether it was religion or clubs or whatever, social bonds or whatever, when you tear that stuff down, um, you're still a person that needs meaning and people are grabbing for it in every place they can. You want to understand the rise of the alt-right or the radical left? It is people seeking meaning, trying to grasp meaning out of anything. If religion is dead, then anything will do for me to find meaning in, for me to put my hope in, for me to align my life with. We are meaning-making machines. And so um, be careful as, as, we, as we get into this and, and don't get sucked in to uh, our, our culture, which is telling us that all of our meaning should be wrapped up in the political realm. Jesus didn't believe that, and he showed us a different way. So don't get wrapped up in earthly kingdoms. And number two, Jesus gives us kingdom work to do, so let's do it. Let's get after it. Jesus' uh, 
final teaching to his disciples. This is what he said in Matthew 28. And Jesus came, to, came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He gathers up his closest disciples and says, I need you guys to go and teach everybody about me and spread the word about me and expand the kingdom. Obey everything I've taught and teach others to do the same. That's discipleship. That's what it means to follow after Jesus. That's what it means to be a subject in the kingdom. There's kingdom work to do. That's called, if you know the church, that's called the Great Commission. And he gives this Great Commission to send people out. I saw online the other day, it was a red hat with white letters, and the white letters said, make the commission great again. And I'm like, I love it. That's hilarious. Let's make the commission great again. As followers of Jesus, let's say, hey, my, I, I, I may be a nurse. I may, I may be, you know, a teacher. I may be a social worker. I may be, I, there's all these things that I do. But at the end of the day, what I really am is a disciple of Jesus. And the calling on my life is to make other disciples of Jesus. That means you pour out and pour into other people. Who are you pouring into? Who are you investing in from a faith perspective? Now, here's why people bristle at that. Because people go, I don't know enough to pour into other people. I need to hear one more sermon, read one more book, and then maybe I'll know enough. But you can make disciples without knowing everything. I heard this statistic that said that there's this whole underground movement of churches in China. And the, and the average leader in the Chinese church is an 18-year-old female who probably knows less about the Bible than you do right now. What are you waiting for? We're, we're disciples in this kingdom. We're supposed to make more of us. We're supposed to point other people to Jesus. Who are you pouring into? Who are you investing in? This is not a job for professional Christians. Don't just quit your day job and be, try to become a pastor. That's not it. That's not the strategy. This is actually a calling for all followers of Jesus. In your job, in your school, in your level of education, with your group of friends, no matter where you are, you start there. And you go, I'm, I'm called by God to disciple and pour into other people because I'm a citizen of his kingdom and that kingdom is here. So let's get to work. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the kingdom of God that is around us and in the air that we breathe. I thank you for your son entering Jerusalem that final week and proclaiming himself as a king, both in what we looked at today and stuff we'll look at this coming week, uh, in these coming weeks. Um, God, I thank you for the reality of the kingdom and that we get to be a people who, even though we live in America, we are part of something different as well. God, may we live out those differences. May we lean into them. May we know you, follow you. And Lord, may we be your disciples who make disciples that, uh, that we reproduce, um, that we help be part of the process of reproducing faith in other people. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.